welcome to the Better Being Podcast with Greg Stark and Ali Orr. This is a podcast that dives into the four pillars of performance, movement, mindset, nutrition, and mental health. We speak with experts, find real-life case studies and helpful anecdotes, and we do our best to learn more about optimizing human performance. It's been a while since we have recorded a podcast episode, and today I'm really excited to be here with Maddie instead of Greg, and we're going to be talking to Mark Butler. Now, Mark Butler is an interesting guy who has a really long history of um, working in commercial spaces, but also he's been working a lot as a mental health strategist and he's a clinical specialist and has a lot to do with burnout, things like anxiety, depression, trauma, substance abuse, and all those related issues. I'm really interested to talk to Mark today about um, sort of his background and the area of mental health, especially in a corporate setting, and things that we can do as individuals and as corporations to sort of safeguard ourselves and our people against burnout. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Really excited to have you today. Thanks, Ali. Really happy to be here. Hi, Maddie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Mark. How are you? Excellent, thank you. And just to get us started, I thought it would be awesome if you could give us a little bit of background um, into how you got into clinical psychotherapy and sort of what motivated you to get in there. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Look, I speak about my mental health journey um, quite openly. And and I think the more people that do, the more we normalize the conversation and make it easier for others to reach out. But um, so I uh, have a history of um, anxiety and depression going back to when I was about 10 years of age, when I was quite ill as a young kid. Uh, diagnosed as depression, uh, but it was actual, uh, actually anxiety. So I was misdiagnosed for years. The thing with, with those two conditions, and people in businesses will find the same, the symptoms can be so similar and the treatments are so similar that they quite often sort of get confused or um, people actually struggle with both sometimes. Um, and uh, an experience of it and a sort of a knowledge and a lived experience and sense around it. But, uh, but when it came to burnout, uh, I actually did burn out in a, in a role I was in sort of early to mid-2000s, and uh, that really sparked my interest. That was around about the time when I got involved in my own journey, trying to figure out what the hell was going on and what am I going to do about it. And uh, so I... I my response to burnout at that time was to change my role. Uh, so I went to a different uh, organization in a slightly different role. But that worked wonders for me. But it also gave me the opportunity then to explore mental health as a topic. And I followed my nose. And um, suddenly, I one day I looked up and I had two master's degrees uh, in mental health and a bunch of other um, qualifications that... I I used in a sort of a pro bono way, if you like. So for a number of years, I was doing sort of a lot of volunteer work, a lot of program development and design for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and substance abuse issues. Um, developed a world-first program for that, which is going to launch in November this year. So it's been supported by the Australian government, I'm very happy to say. So, um, I'm, you know, there's, there's bragging rights for that, I suppose. But it also, um, in doing that, I, I, I found myself working in the mental health space more and more and less and less working for corporates. And ended up, actually, I'm, I'm a clinical director for a, a exclusive treatment facility up in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. And, and that experience has given me an exposure to people who uh, are concerned about reputation, concerned about their own, um, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, so basically reputation. Um, but, uh, but it's given me a great insight into the various aspects of burnout and um, stress that people experience in the corporate space. And that brought me back into the corporate sort of angle, if you like, as well. There's a, and the reason for that is uh, the analogy I give is I've spent years being the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff waiting for people to sort of fall off or to be pushed off. 
Um, and uh, I have for a long time seen that it's n- not necessary. We don't have to wait until issues are exacerbated to this level. We can be a fence around the top of the cliff. And I think it's important that we start to look at uh, mental health from that perspective. Let's get out in front of issues. Let's um, get into a prevention space rather than uh, a reaction space, if you like. And and that's now flavoured a lot of the work I do. And then so with that, I suppose in prevention, you really need to start looking at what are the risk factors. Um, yeah. And so what, what are the risk factors for, for something like burnout? For something like burnout, it's you look. Burnout is a response to uh, chronic stress and chronic stressors within a workplace. And for a long, long time, whenever organisations or, or individuals talked about burnout, we used to look at the individual themselves. But in actual fact, just about any. Uh, workplace-related burnout, because there are other types, but but any workplace-related burnout is not actually the individual. It's much more likely to be an organization or a systems problem. So so burnout's about your workplace, not your people. And the, the analogy I like to use for that is um, there was traditionally coal miners used to take a canary in a cage down into the coal mine. Now, the reason they used to do that was a canary, a male canary will sing almost incessantly in search of a mate. And so they would bring a male canary down in a cage, down into the coal mine. When the canary stopped singing, that meant there's an issue with the air quality or there is some other issue that, you know, the the miners need to be aware of. So it was a kind of an early warning system, if you like. And when they came back at the end of a shift, if the canary wasn't singing and it was covered in dust, etc., or if the canary was dead at the bottom of the cage, that meant, you know, this is a warning. There is something, there's something toxic about our, our workplace. Um, and so for years, we've been blaming the canary and looking for uh, stronger canaries to put back down the coal mine, if you like. You know, that that's my analogy. Um, really, it's we we need to look at the systems that are in place because it's going to be a workload or a work design or a work balance problem. Uh, and I think we, we, we can all agree that, look, this is a business and the work needs to be done, but we need to, in order to safeguard our investment in our people, we need to look at how we're distributing the work. Is somebody carrying a workload more than somebody else? Uh, are they fit for the job? Um, uh, do they have some level of autonomy and do they feel passionate about the role? Do they feel like they're making a difference? These are all issues uh, that are sort of workload related, if you like, that will influence somebody's uh, susceptibility to burnout. And we have to, when we talk about burnout, we have to talk about it's much more than just exhaustion. There are other elements to burnout that need to be considered. Things like uh, if somebody's developing a level of cynicism, short-tempered and angry, uh, talking badly or disparagingly about the business or about their colleagues or even their customers. And then if their work quality starts to slip, these are the three, That's we call that a lack of efficacy. And those three elements are, are very, very particular to burnout. And, and they're so much more than just like mental, physical or emotional exhaustion. So, so those are the sorts of things that leaders need to be watching out for in their people. And we can't just say, you know, oh, build your resilience and, you know, get more sleep or take a holiday. It, it doesn't work like that. Not anymore. You know, we, we need to take a, a very different approach if we're going to stay in that prevention space. And when you talk about those sort of things that come from burnout, um, yep. you know, being uh, rude or snappy with your co-workers and then your work yeah. starts slipping. I'm sure there's a lot of examples where companies keep putting pressure on the individual and saying, why aren't you performing better? Or, you know, sort your yeah. attitude out, you know, and it, I'm assuming that it just becomes a vicious cycle, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Look, there was, you know, for a long, long time, um, being exhausted and stressed at work was a kind of a badge of honour, you know, or even even claiming to be burned out 
or burning out was a badge of honor. And look, look at how much I'm contributing and look at how much I'm sacrificing myself on the altar of the, of the company. But, but it's a false economy because you don't get the best out of your people. And in actual fact, you're, you know, you're setting them up to fail and you're not going to get the best out of them. And, and so often we just keep piling on the pressure and, and, assuming that you know we'll get the best out of our people by doing that but it's actually not it's a it's it that's that's a race to the bottom uh and and we're finally coming to understand that now um and and investing in our people we uh we're investing in people and 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 we're we're forcing them in many cases to do work that that they just they're not set up to do then maybe not right for the role or there's too much in the role for one person to manage uh, and and the workload needs to be separated out you know and and looked at i mean i'm not a i'm not a work design specialist by any means but i do know what it is when somebody's got too much of it and what actually happens to them and then that's interesting sort of um i guess a lot of this is put back on the organization you know uh this role's too much or there's too much work, you're not delegating properly, something like that. Yeah. Um, but is there a part of burnout that's also linked to a certain type of personality? Like, is you know, people talk about type A personalities or type B personalities. Like, is there some type yeah. of person who's more susceptible to burnout than others? Look, yeah, there are actually. And, and, and there's types of burnout that are not even work-related, but, you know, we can't park burnout at the, at the office door and come in and... and deliver peak performance there are um, in terms of other types of burnout we have to consider um parental burnout is is a very real thing um caring for elderly people caring for kids with special needs um taking on too much in other aspects of our lives um and and a great one is somebody who doesn't have the ability to say no and push back when more and more and more is being pushed on them so, so those are all things that that can exacerbate somebody's kind of susceptibility to burnout, if you like. And and it, it has to be said, these are not work related at all. So when I said earlier that you know the the, the issue lies with the organisation, we really do have to um, we do have to differentiate there and and say workplace related burnout is usually a systems issue and it's an individual responding to that like the canary in the cage you know you can't blame the canary for for bad air quality down the coal mine he's only he's only responding to it um in terms of uh, personalities yeah th- there's a lot said and there's some research around type a personalities as an example are people who can be susceptible to to burnout, but to me, it's much more around lifestyle and and situations that people find themselves in. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. And is there a part of it um, where people are just sort of going all day every day, and they're not really very self aware of how they feel, or maybe how much they're taking on, and then it just all gets too much? Absolutely, yeah, because. That you'll quite often find people who are anxious, have an anxious disposition, um, will, you know, there's a great saying that says, give the job your best, but don't give it your all. You know, don't give it everything you've got. Always have something in reserve. And I'm a big fan of that because that speaks to somebody's mindset and it speaks to how they actually, their self-care as well. And, and potentially to their, their resilience and their ability to seek opportunity uh, at times of adversity. But if we're, if we're just going flat out all the time, we're, we're redlining and we're not going to deliver the best that we could probably deliver. Uh, and, and I think that was like, the, I think that was my story when I burnt out. I was just, the, the role just became too big and, and I was working for too many bosses and everybody wanted a slice of me. Um, and and I tried to be all things to all people, and didn't really have the ability then to just push back and say no, this is too much, or this is unworkable, or this is you know you're not going to get a result by tracking it like this. And and as a result, I yeah took on too much for too long and um, crashed and burned. And and I had to change roles, which 
you know, which was kind of the end of the line, really. Uh, and it's not always the case. That doesn't actually have to be the end result of somebody burning out. But change has to occur. Does that answer what you were saying? Yeah, it does. And it actually brings up another question. I'm hmm. interested if you um, are okay to talk a little bit about, like, in your specific example when you did burn out, yep. what what happened to you? Do you what was your mental state like? Um, what was the sort of lifestyle that you were living at that time? Yeah, do you know, it was. I was in a role where where there was, I think, I remember at the time there was about 30 hours of my week were spent in meetings, all of which generated some more work to be done and and i can remember looking at uh the the clock and saying five o'clock thank god people will start going home and i can get some work done finally um and uh coming in on a saturday because the office would be quiet and i get get some more work done uh, and then the only exercise i got during the week was cycling into the office on a saturday because it you know the, it was safe to do and and uh, and then that Saturday became kind of a Sunday morning as well, sort of thing. So um, I didn't sort of see it in myself. I just saw that I was giving it my all, and and there was maybe a bit of doubt that I'm not good enough for the role because other people would be able to get it done in in less time, or I'm you know I wasn't good enough at remembering facts and figures, or you know there was I was putting these sorts of pressures on myself and making me raise the bar just that little bit more all the time and because i was doing it without ever pushing back uh senior leadership saw that as oh yeah you can give the gig to mark give that job or that role to mark you know he'll get it done and we don't have to worry about it it'll it'll actually happen but that's you know somebody who has some level of anxiety that's quite a common thing to see that we don't know when what we're delivering is good enough so we just assume it isn't and we keep pushing ourselves even more and more so i didn't see it creeping up in myself but my partner at the time started to notice that i was snapping and my reactions were you know uh she said i was being condescending Uh, and i remember at the time thinking, i have no idea what you're talking about i don't think i am that's not what i'm like at all um but other people noticed things in me and and i think then there was i i shed some tears after the meeting and i remember one of my work colleagues going listen it's just a job don't worry about it and and, and that was a that was a kind of a litmus test for me i said god this has all happened and i didn't even see it creeping up yeah so that's kind of my story but uh, and even the people working for me after I left, uh, they had a bit of fun because they were saying, I remember one of them telling me, Mark, you used to come into the office and ask us questions. And if and if it was something that we were going to be challenged by, all we had to say was, Mark, we spoke about this yesterday and I told you all about it. And I would go, oh, did we? Okay. <laughs> and I would leave. So I was in that much of a spin, I think, that um, they were able to sort of work around me by just telling me we'd already had the conversation. Uh, I laugh about it now. But uh, (laughs) it was kind of interesting at the time. So that was kind of, yeah, that was my experience around burnout. Um, And and it was actually not able to spot my own, uh, where where my my emotional intelligence had disappeared to such an extent that I couldn't even recognize um, emotions and recognize reactions to my stressful environment in myself. It's very interesting that you say that. I'm just wondering, do you think people um, get stuck in that loop where they're just so used to performing at such a high level and under such a high amount of stress that that they really do think it's their normal and that they think it's okay to almost be that that burnt out normally? Oh, absolutely. This is the problem. And I think people do get to that space, Maddie, um, where where it becomes their sort of new normal, if you like. Now, I know that's a phrase that's bandied around a lot since COVID, but it becomes their new way of operating. And when they're seeing some level of results from it, either accolades or either, you know, for a while they're delivering good work, that just becomes the, the sort of go-to. This is now the expectation. And they'll drive themselves to to deliver at that sort of level. And And there is a cost to it. Absolutely, there is. Um, and, and it was the same cost I had, I think. Uh, you know, just keep driving harder and harder. Uh, like the other analogy I think you could use would be the cars on a racetrack. 
supercars or Holdens or whatever you want to talk about. They could do a 1,000 or 2,000 kilometers and an engine is completely burnt out. Or that same car can be a taxi around town and you get 700,000 kilometers out of it. You know what I mean? So it's it's how you treat it and how, how it's expected to perform is going to have a huge... I wanted to just go back a step. Sure. You were talking a little bit about emotional intelligence um, mm. and that you sort of felt like it disappeared. Firstly, I want to ask you, um, I'm sure you're an expert, what is emotional intelligence? And secondly, sure. do you feel like that's something that we're born with or that we develop? Because I, I think the term disappeared is interesting. It means that you, you I guess, figured that you had some um, originally and yep. then you were burnt out and then it, it vanished. So I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Sure. My impression or my sort of definition of emotional intelligence, the one that I tend to sort of cling to, I think, is is our ability to sort of understand and use and and, and actually manage our emotions in a positive way. Now I think uh I think we've all we're all born with emotional intelligence and empathy and I, and I think that because instinctively as humans we we belong in a tribe we're a sort of a pack animal if you like and and the only way to be able to do that is to be able to live in community and live uh in such a way that we are aware of other people as well as ourselves and it's not just all about us so I think we're born with that. Do we lose it? Yeah, I think we probably do or possibly do in some elements. And and it could be to do with maybe, you know, in school you're taught to be the best you can absolutely be and climb over everybody else in the in the uh climb over everybody else in terms of competition for space, for the team, for best in the class, et cetera, et cetera. And I think having that competitive mentality can wear it out. Um, so I believe we all have it, and I think it's just a question of checking back in with ourselves and, and coming to understand it again and to recognize emotions when they come up. Like me and my burnout story, uh, I lost the ability, I think, to recognize what stress was or what my fight or flight or anxiety was because it was kind of constantly on, and and it became the new okay. I think that's what really happens. So So – when we are emotionally intelligent and we do learn to recognize sensations and recognize feelings and emotions within us, it allows us to respond positively to our environment, but also to other people around us. And if you're a leader in an organization, I think it's absolutely vital that you reclaim these uh, these abilities if indeed you've lost them or if you don't actually have them. And And there's a number of positives that come out from that when you're leading teams um and that is you know even to reduce your own emotional reaction to uh adversity within either within the team or within the organization or within your industry uh, i think it's important that we have measured responses there's a good friend of mine was a school principal in uh, northern territories and i think he was running some crazy number of schools like he was flying between them at, at one point in time and his uh, his line around emotional intelligence and reactions versus responses was people would say, to, you know, they come to him with a highly charged issue or problem and they'd say, what are we going to do? And his line was, well, do you want my reaction or do you want my response? If you want my reaction, I can give it to you now, but it's probably not really worth anything. Whereas if you give me till the end of the day and I will gather all of the information I need, I will give you my response at five o'clock. And and it would usually be quite a different sort of response to what this knee-jerk reaction might have been. So he was somebody who knew his emotional intelligence, knew its limitations, and knew how important it was for him to take a measured approach to it. And there's there's a sort of a safety and a comfort in certain deep working with somebody who is like that. Uh, and, you know, the other side, I think, of emotional intelligence in terms of leaders' abilities, I think it allows us to appreciate diversity because we, when we, we're probably, gonna, there's, a, there's a, a blurred line between emotional intelligence and empathy. But I think in order to be uh, emotionally intelligent, 
and and aware of people around you that requires a level of empathy as well one leads to the other i think there's no doubt about that and but to be empathetic for other people uh and and their experience that gives you an appreciation of diversity within a team or within an organization which i think is something that has to be absolutely sort of measured and valued as well so it's yeah just Self-awareness around uh, where our emotions lie um, will lead us to being able to regulate those emotions. And to me, that's what emotional intelligence is all about. It's all about that. If we can control and we can manage our own emotions and recognize them for what they are and how they're responding to our environment, we're going to have a much more measured reaction or response to whatever it is that, that that's sort of taking our emotion or taking our energy at that time. It sounds like a very powerful tool um, yeah. for people to harness, not only just for themselves but also for their teams, I suppose. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And then if we're, if that's something that we are trying to value and make a really important part of teams, how mm. do we improve that emotional intelligence in ourselves and our teams? Like how do we cultivate an environment where that's something that we value? That's really, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, and, and I think it's, um, it's learning to listen is going to be the first place and creating a safe space. We talk about a psychologically safe workplace. And traditionally, what a psychologically safe workplace was or is, is where somebody feels safe to take a chance and be innovative and try something different if they think it's going to be, you know, for the betterment of the organization or the team in some way. But I think psychological safety um, as a concept has grown in in recent years to now sort of envelop and, and uh, people's ability to feel safe in any way, shape or form within a team. And so I, I, I see uh, psychological safety as a primary need for people. Uh, there's a guy called Bessel van der Kock, and he is, he's a, sort of a global expert on trauma and the trauma response people who have been traumatized. And, and his line is, he reckons the primary, most important uh, element of, of safety for people is to know that they are safe in the company of others. If you don't have that, absolutely nothing else is going to come together for you. And I see that all the time in teams who who are fearful to speak up or the culture is sort of some kind of a cutting one, uh, you know, a lot of teasing, uh, a lot of sort of bullying. Um, and, and if somebody doesn't feel safe in their environment, you're not going to get the best out of them. And the only way that you can recognize that that sort of a toxic culture or that toxic environment uh, is, un if you're emotionally intelligent, you'll recognize it. And if you're not, you won't. And other people won't thrive within that space. So how, yeah, how do we build it up? In my mind, it's, it's about creating the conditions to create a safe space and a safe environment for your people to arrive and be at work and and know that they are safe and that involves basically dialogue conversation we need to normalize the conversations around mental health as an example mm. and reduce stigma as a concept so that people uh you know do feel safe to reach out and ask for support if they need it or feel okay if their boss checks in on them and asks how are they doing because that can actually be you know, the, some people's default position is to say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, and, and not respond and not feel safe in an environment. So I, in my mind, if you've, if you've got that right, the rest of it starts to flow. If, people, if your people feel safe in their team and in their workspace and environment, the rest of it comes naturally. Yeah, that's really, really powerful, I think. Mm. Um, without going into too much of a rabbit hole, I sort of... Yeah. Um, I picked up what you said about uh, stigma and I was wondering, um, is, is that a really big problem in workplaces? I can imagine that people just don't want to talk about mental health. You know, they want to appear like they've got everything under control. Yeah. You know, um, I can do everything. Just put it on my desk. I'll get to it. Like I'm yeah. sure that when people ask, how are you? Yeah. It's never going to be a real conversation. And I'm assuming that's got to do with stigma. Is that right? 
A l- yes, a large part of it would be Ali. I think when when to me stigma sees discrimination does. So so there are very strict rules around discrimination in the workplace and in society, and rightly so, because it's something measurable and you can see it. Um, uh, you know, we discriminate against people based on gender, based on skin color, based on religious beliefs. Uh, criminal records, you name it. There's any number of things we can discriminate against people. But stigma is a kind of a silent creeper. And you can see it sometimes we can stigmatize people um, based on, you know, sort of intellectual ability, etc. Um, and and the interesting thing, I think, with stigma is uh, it can be seen or it can be unseen. You know, you might not notice it. And and the, so, therefore, we can't legislate against it. So it comes down to the culture in an organization. So we accept the standard that we walk past, if you like. Um, so, But in terms of people, whether they are stigmatized or whether they feel stigmatized, it kind of doesn't really matter. If their perception is that they're not going to be safe in coming forward, then they're not. Then stigma occur; it's apparent for them. And the only way that we can actually circumvent it or reduce or eliminate stigma is by having a normal conversation. And and you know we can just having conversations around. It's okay to not be okay. You know. Um, uh, are you okay day is probably, you know, I'd shudder to think where we as a society would be without that. But in and of itself, you know, the one day a year when we celebrate or, or uh, involve ourselves in a, in a, are you okay day is it's not enough. And in fact, it's a closed question, a dangerous one to ask, are you okay? It's you're much better to ask, how are you? Which is an open-ended question. Good point. Yeah, yeah, because the look the the natural res- the knee jerk response to are you okay is yeah I'm fine, um, but how are you really or how are you today or how are you this week creates an opportunity for somebody to say yeah struggling a bit actually you might have noticed or you know um, I haven't <laughs> noticed or I see it in myself or whatever it is, but in but if if we feel that we're not going to be safe to come forward with that then we tend not to. And it's the same in society, people, you know, with mental health. We fear what we don't know. I think that's the big thing. Um, as a species, we're kind of xenophobic in that way. We fear something we don't know. And and so, you know, we, we will treat homeless people differently to the way we will treat other people because we don't understand who they are, how they got there, or what their re- reaction or response is to any kind of connection is going to be. And it's that fear that creates that sort of, level of mistrust and judgment and and that's where stigma comes from yeah yeah it's interesting and i know that as humans we all carry some type of unconscious bias right we do we do yeah um that makes it really difficult especially in in workplaces where you know we're getting there but we're not quite yet yeah i i think so too i really do um yeah and do you know what there's an interesting thing maddie just about that whole idea of stigma it's it's kind of i suppose a little champion task of mine is is trying to figure out how we can reduce stigma and how we can make it safer for people to sort of lean in and 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 ask for help when it's uh when they feel safe to do so and that really in my mind does come down to the space that the leader creates you know in in the workplace environment as an example there's a, a lot of the time in the workplace i think a leader and in fact, statistically, over 50% of leaders are unsure or un, feel uh, sort of unwilling to have that sort of conversation with their people because they don't know what to say or they don't know how it's going to come out or how it's going to end up. Absolutely. It's a really interesting um, topic. We actually, as part of the content we produce, we've just put out a an information flyer on how to have co- uh, hard conversations and how difficult they can be, but also, yeah. you know, how important it is to kind of open up that space to have those safe com- uh, conversations should you need to have them. Yeah. And it's not a question of leaders actually, you know, having to take on the troubles of somebody else, which seems to be sort of one of the things that really triggers leaders into not having the conversation. And they just say, 
all gussy HR about that or ring the EAP. Mm. It's not HR's responsibility. Uh, it, it is actually, it rests with the leader. In the first instance, uh, at least, to be able to create the space where somebody can feel okay to not be okay. Um, and in fact, there's a bunch of research around the common factors in uh, what keeps uh, uh, sort of the common factors in, in the likelihood of somebody recovering from, an, from a mental health illness. And they call, again, they call it the, the sort of efficacy of, of recovery. Yeah. And, and 40% of the likelihood of somebody getting better is based on the level of support they're going to get from their community which will mean family and friends, obviously, but it also means the workplace. And and uh, 30% of the likelihood of somebody getting better is based on their sense of hope that they can, which, of course, will be influenced by the support that they're getting in their community. So when you add those two together, what we can say is 70% of the likelihood of somebody recovering from a mental health illness can be really heavily influenced by the response they get from their leader and their workplace and their teammates. All right. And what what can leaders do in this space to better help their employees? Look, I think um, for leaders, I do know from my experience that as as many as half of uh, leaders are uncertain and unwilling to ha- to start a conversation with their people because they're not sure what to say, whether they're going to be interfering uh, or whether they're going to be taking on somebody's problems that they don't know how to deal with. So they don't, they're not quite sure what they should say. And, and um, you know, I've, I've even had it said, does this mean now I have to become a counsellor or a chaplain as well? And, and the emphatic answer to that is absolutely not, no way. Leaders, we have a tendency to assume that if we're asked a question, it's expected that we have the answer, and and we actually don't. In this case, particularly, we're not expected to have the answer for uh, our people who are struggling with with a mental health or a burnout issue in some way. So I, I often quote there's a, a, there's a statistic that I will quote that is based on a number of different um, research models around what they call the efficacy of um, recovering from a mental health issue. What's the likelihood of somebody recovering? And 40% of the likelihood of somebody getting better from a mental health issue is is based or is predicated on the level of support that they've got in their community, including the workplace. (coughs) Pardon me. Including the workplace. So uh, by that we mean the sort of support that they've got from family, from friends, from peers, and from their work colleagues and and their leader as well. So that's 40% of the likelihood of recovering. 30% of the likelihood of getting better is based on their sense of hope that they can get better, which of course in itself is linked in some ways to that likelihood of them um, getting better through the sort of community support. So when you add just those two percentages together, you've got 70% of the likelihood of someone getting better is predicated on the support that they get and the sense of hope they have. So you can see how much a leader can influence that. And now I haven't even mentioned any kind of therapeutic response or any type of treatment modality or anything like that. So 70% of the likelihood of somebody getting better a leader has the ability to influence just by being there and creating that psychologically safe and supportive environment. And can I just jump in here? Um, Do you find that leaders feel like that's a lot of pressure? Um, They do until they begin to understand uh, what really anybody expects of them. Um, They feel like they they could be taking on sort of too much. But in actual fact, what, what really happens when a leader uh, becomes more adept at being and, and, and more skilled at being able to have those sorts of caring conversations with their people. In actual fact, what it does in creating that psychologically safe environment for their people, it, it creates a much more cohesive workplace, uh, a much more connected and engaged team. 
and they also develop a, re a reputation, if you like, for for being a caring leader. And the another consequence then of, of having that reputation is it's very very difficult for someone to ever accuse a leader of being of bullying or favoritism or anything like that when they have that reputation for being supportive and um, uh, caring for their people because you know any leader will tell you that one of the greatest fears they have is being accused of bullying or f of showing favoritism or nepotism or something like that and this removes the likelihood of that happening because they've actually developed a reputation of being caring and then they're, when their people know that they can reach out and look for some help and support where they need it, that creates, that means that you actually get to the issues sooner and you're able to resolve them a lot quicker. It's a bit like a team captain running onto the football pitch. Uh, she or he needs to know whether somebody on the team is, is not playing at their best or is beginning to limp or something like that. And if they if they have that knowledge earlier in the game, they can take steps to rectify it and they can you know uh change the the team environment if you like or change the game plan so that they can still achieve what they need to achieve but they're not waiting for somebody to collapse and be taken off the pitch yeah yeah and when you're talking about support coming from leadership mm. uh what does like a gold standard supportive environment look like to you um to look for me, to me um i think an environment where your people feel like they um can bring their full selves to work so so in other words um if they're not at their best that they know that it's okay to not be okay uh that the team and the leaders got their back i think that's very very important so that we're talking about psychological safety here um, I think uh, teams need to know that their leader is open to them trying innovative new ideas um, and, and trying maybe having some autonomy on how they actually conduct their role. I think that's very important if we're going to be able to say that what we do has impact and it matters and how I do it is respected and received, then all of that creates that sort of engage. Uh, sense that you'll have from your team and from your people. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting how much the support and the community around you really impacts on this stuff. It's very, oh, it's, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's massive. It makes a really, really big difference. Knowing that we belong, I think that's really important. And even Brené Brown, you know, talks about the paradox of belonging. Um, you really have to know that you're secure and safe within yourself before you can actually sort of deliver yourself to belong to a team. So yes, absolutely, uh, that's very, very important. But to know that what we do matters to the team that we're working with and that our input is valued and respected and that we belong and we matter, um, I think that's sure. the fundamental. If you don't have that, you don't have a team. You've got a collection of individuals yeah, I think that's really powerful and such an yeah. important message. You know, if, if we don't know who we are, how do we know, you know, how we belong to anyone else? Yeah, how, exactly right. And 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 if us kind of surrendering ourselves completely to the to to uh, something or somebody else means that we don't really have that sort of level of of self autonomy. It's very very difficult to bring our full selves to to be anything other than that. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Mm. All right, so just to wrap up today, um, we're going to give you our quick fire questions, which we oh, are yeah. doing. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. All right, first question, if you could change someone's mind about something, what would it be? Ah, that's interesting. Look, I think it would be uh, around normalising the conversations around mental health. If, if I could, I mean, that would be a... a a quest of mine, I think, is to remove or reduce stigma around mental health and burnout. I think it's hugely important that we have to be able to know that we, we're safe in the company of others. So if I could change somebody's mind and mindset around what mental health means, then if I could do one a day and then each one teach one, I think we would be in a great position. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. 
All right, second question. What are you excited about right now in regards to all the stuff we've been talking about in the corporate space, in burnout? What's really exciting you? I think what's really exciting me is that it's shifted from being sort of ticking boxes to to businesses and organizations actually understanding the value in uh, looking after their people. So we've moved past colorful posters, actually understanding, yeah, the mental health um, of our people has such a huge effect on the business from from every aspect. And so it's finally, unfortunately, it took a pandemic to actually get us there, but, but the penny has dropped. And I think people are understanding now that it's much more uh, important and, and, and it's actually far more prevalent than we really thought it was. So I'm delighted with that. And that excites me a great deal. This focus on mental health and burnout, I think, is going to make a huge difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. And do you have a book uh, or a podcast or a resource that you recommend or something that you're really enjoying right now? There's actually two books that I'm reading right now, and and, and I, it's always a challenge which one to pick up. <laughs> but uh, there's a chap called Owen Eastwood has written a book called Belonging, The Ancient Code of Togetherness. And he talks about his connection to his Maori roots in, in New Zealand. And I think he's got some Irish connection as well. But uh, he talks about uh, the importance of belonging and what it actually means to the psyche of people down through generations. And I'm really enjoying that book. But also, um, on a more practical level, Paula Davis has written a book called Beat Burnout at Work. And, and she's created a model called PRIMED, um, which is an acronym for a, a number of different areas that she covers. But but it's a great book. It's really, really interesting and very, very practical as well. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah I might. actually really like, um, uh, I've heard a lot about Owen Eastwood and that belonging book. I think it's about time I pick it up. Oh, yeah, do, do. It's really, really interesting. <laughs> Next question is there mm-hmm. a health hack or something you always do um, or something you wish you knew earlier that you started doing and putting into your routine? Um, yes. Yes, there is. I, look, I meditate. Um, awesome. It's f- f- kind of new to me. Like, you know, I, I would do mindfulness exercises and, and sort of body scans and stuff like that. But I've taken meditation to a slightly more deeper level now and I'm just really enjoying the journey and I'm trying a number of different types um, that uh, I'm finding really really impactful as well in fact I'm going to tell you what I've got an app on my phone called insight timer and and I'm finding that's really really useful because it's got a really wide range of different types of, of meditation so you know you can try a bunch of different ones to see which ones you get right and of course as part of meditating, breathing and learning to breathe properly and, and breathing exercises like that, I think, are hugely valuable throughout the day. So even if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed, just 30 seconds of, of slow, steady breathing is, is the body's way of telling the brain that you're not in fight or flight mode and, and that you're actually safe. And it can bring you back down and center you quite well. So those are my two tips at the moment. That's what's really working for me. Yeah, that's awesome. Something as well that I've started doing more recently is trying to get into a daily practice of meditation. And, you know, when you're getting back into it after a long time off, it's a very hard thing to do. Yeah, we've all got squirrels in the tree, haven't we? Our mind (laughs) is, you know, flying every which way. And look, that's what it's designed to do. So I think the challenge with, with mindfulness is actually to not judge yourself for having done that that's if you've noticed it well then your meditation is working because you're noticing that your mind is racing acknowledge it and just go back to where you were um focusing again i think that's the key non-judgmental just be aware of it if you notice it bring it back that means that your meditation is working and we don't punish ourselves for not clearing our minds i mean you know it's just impossible to do yeah very Mm. true all right last question i have for you Mm. somebody alive that you could have a conversation with they'd tell you anything and you invite them over for dinner who would it be um, god there are so many people that i that i have questions for um 
I really admire Brené Brown's work. Like she's taken something like like shame and vulnerability, but she's painted it in a positive language, which I think has been really successful. She talks about courage and, and how vulnerability is courage. I'd really love to sit and have a conversation with her. Um, but the other one, I've always admired Richard Branson. Um, I worked for him in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and I just think what he's got to say is really interesting because he kind of flew in the face of what was deemed to be um, standard sort of behaviors and, and procedures, etc. You know, when he started out yeah. in business, he he um, yeah he broke the mold. So I think he'd be great. He'd be good fun. I actually think I would love to have a conversation with both Brene Brown and Richard Branson in the same room. I feel like that would be a very interesting conversation. <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, actually, wouldn't what they'd have to say about each other's ideas as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'd invite them to dinner and then I'd sit back and not say a bloody word. <laughs> just, <laughs> just let it happen. That's what I think I'd do. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Mark, for coming on the Better Being podcast. We were really excited to talk My to you pleasure. about burnout, especially because this is something that we all struggle with at some yeah. at some level at some time in our life. And I think that this type of conversation is really important to have, um, not just for leaders, but for individuals as well, for us to understand where we are in our head and how to move forward. Um, so thank you so much. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Ellie. And just before we go, if you want to just tell people where they can find you and where they can get a few more resources, if that's something they want. Sure, absolutely. You'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, I spend quite a bit of time in there, and it's just my name, Mark Butler. You'll you'll see me there. Um, or send me an email, mark at markbutler.com.au. And uh, I love a conversation um, and, you know, no strings attached. If, if there's something you want to know, just send me a message and, and I'd very happily have a conversation with anybody. I love it. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much, Ellie. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Better Being Podcast. If you want to learn more, follow us on social media at Better Being PT on Instagram and as Better Being on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you like what you heard, drop us a review. And until next time, stay well.